You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 55, The Promise. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in February of 1800. The people of France had just approved the new consulate constitution in a landslide referendum. True, Minister of Justice Lucien Bonaparte had fixed the vote for his brother, But Napoleon's dominance over France was now written into the very fabric of the political system, at least for the next ten years until his term as first consul ran out. However, as we've focused almost exclusively on politics over the last few episodes, we've been ignoring a pretty big elephant in the room. France was still at war with the powerful Second Coalition. There had been a lull in the fighting over these last few months. War always slowed down in the winter, when logistics and maneuver became much more difficult, and French victories the previous year had broken the Allied momentum. But it wouldn't stay this way for long. As Napoleon settled into his new position, spring was fast approaching. He would soon have to deal with the war. This was Bonaparte's primary concern. He believed nothing less than the survival of his new regime depended on a quick, decisive victory over the coalition. That might sound a bit overdramatic. With the benefit of hindsight, we know Napoleon would hold on to power almost unchallenged for well over a decade. But this was by no means a sure thing in 1800. Bonaparte had witnessed firsthand the way setbacks on the battlefield could lead to political problems for the government in Paris. After all, it was the Directory's mishandling of the war which had created the opening for the coup of Brumaire. Napoleon had won over the French public with an image of military competence, and the promise that he alone could impose peace on the coalition. It was important that he deliver. While he had sidelined all of his most visible rivals, there were still plenty of French politicians and generals with ambitions of their own, who didn't necessarily wish Napoleon well. They deferred to him for now, but how long would that remain true if he couldn't deliver victories? If Bonaparte failed on the battlefield, the consulate might easily follow the directory into the dustbin of history. As France prepared to face the coalition in the campaign season of 1800, they got a big boost from their enemies. To everyone's surprise, Russia, the single biggest member of the coalition, suddenly pulled out of the war. The Russian emperor, Paul I, was infamous for his erratic shifts in policy, but even by his standards, this was a big one. In 1798, he was so incensed by Napoleon's treatment of the Order of St. John of Malta and so fearful of political radicalism that it seemed he would be willing to go to any lengths to defeat the Republic. Two years later, the war against France had proved much more difficult than the Russians had initially hoped. They had suffered severe public setbacks, and tens of thousands of soldiers had been lost and all for an enterprise that had little bearing on Russia's core national interests. Britain and Austria had obvious strategic reasons to struggle against French domination of Western Europe, but it wasn't at all clear how Russia's interests would be threatened if France triumphed over her enemies. The Russians were fighting mostly for their emperor's personal sense of justice, and when the going got tough, he lost interest. With the Russians gone, the Habsburgs now carried almost all the weight of the effort against France. The British pursued the war energetically at sea, 
But with the failure of their expedition to the Netherlands, they no longer had any significant military presence on the continent. This is not the first time we've seen France benefit from the disunity of her enemies, and it would certainly not be the last. If Bonaparte could land a knockout blow against the Austrians, the land war in Europe would effectively be over, and his biggest promise to the people of France would be fulfilled. The strategic situation at the dawn of the 19th century was this. In Germany, the front lines between the Habsburg and Republican forces more or less mirrored the pre-war border between France and the Holy Roman Empire, with the exception of a moderately-sized pocket of territory in southern Germany, conquered by the French the previous year. Switzerland was back under the control of the French-aligned Helvetic Republic, after General André Massena's success driving out the Austrians and Russians the previous year. Northern Italy had fallen to the coalition. Napoleon's old command, the Army of Italy, had been badly mauled, first by the Russians and Austrians, and then by an outbreak of typhus. By the time the army limped back to Nice on the French side of the Alps, it was down to about 17,000 men, barely bigger than a division. Out of all the stunning conquests of Napoleon's first Italian campaign, only one outpost of French power remained the port city of Genoa, where 10,000 Republican troops under André Massena defiantly held out. This foothold was small, but vitally important to the overall picture. The Habsburg commander in northern Italy, General Michael von Melas, had well over 100,000 troops at his disposal, more than enough to keep any counter-attacking French army bottled up in the narrow Alpine passes. But as long as Massena remained a thorn in his side, he had to devote thousands of troops to man the siege lines, and keep more in reserve nearby in case the besieged French broke out. It was the same problem Napoleon had three years earlier, when he had to keep Mantua under siege while simultaneously holding off Austrian relief attempts. But despite the drama underway in Genoa, most observers assumed the war would be decided in southern Germany. A cursory glance at a map could tell you this was the best terrain anywhere on the front for the rapid movement of armies. Both sides had concentrated the largest numbers of forces in this region. Archduke Charles, brother of the Holy Roman Emperor and probably Austria's best general, was the coalition commander in this sector. By all appearances, this was Napoleon's thinking as well. Almost as soon as he took power, the First Consul began assembling a new army in Dijon, a major French city not far from the bulge cut into southern Germany by Republican forces. Come spring, it looked like this army of reserve at Dijon would advance into Germany and push towards Vienna. Archduke Charles and well over a 100,000 Habsburg troops would be standing in their way, but this was the shortest route to the Austrian capital and the end of the war. Napoleon was counting on the army of reserve to deliver the killing blow against the Austrians, but he repeatedly denied that he would lead it himself. After all, he had resigned from the army to take on the role of statesman, and the Constitution forbid him from returning to uniform as long as he was first consul. And so, if Napoleon couldn't lead the army of reserve, he went with the next best thing, his loyal former chief of staff, Alexandre Berthier who worked so closely with Napoleon that people joked he was Bonaparte's brain. As winter turned into spring, there were around 60,000 men assembled at Dijon, organized into three infantry corps, each containing two divisions and detachments of artillery and cavalry, plus a cavalry corps and a small reserve division. All of Europe waited for Berthier to march his new army into the Rhineland and square off against Archduke Charles for the big push on Vienna. But that day would never come. Napoleon always made a point of subverting people's expectations and keeping his opponents guessing, and the assembly of the Army of Reserve at Dijon was one of his greatest ruses yet. On May 5th, the First Consul suddenly left Paris, appearing in Dijon two days later, where he immediately took personal command over the Army of Reserve. The Constitution may have prevented him from holding any formal military rank, but it also made him commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and there was absolutely nothing stopping him from taking personal command over an army in that capacity. The troops at Dijon had secretly been issued special winter clothing, snowshoes, and lightweight portable equipment, because they would not be marching east into Germany, but southeast, into Switzerland, over the Alps, and into Italy. 
On May 8th, the day after Napoleon's arrival, the Army of Reserve broke camp and began their arduous journey into the mountains. The Second Italian Campaign had begun. This push into Italy was a strategic masterstroke. The Austrians were expecting the French offensive elsewhere, and their forces in northern Italy were distracted by the siege of Genoa. But more than that, an offensive through the Swiss Alps would threaten the hinge point where the Italian theater of war met the German theater, and jeopardize all of Austrian-controlled Italy's lines of communication and supply with Vienna. Generals had always used this type of strike-against-the-rear maneuver, but it was usually employed against smaller units, not entire regions. European armies were now large and fast enough to engage in warfare on this scale, but Bonaparte was one of the few people who grasped this new reality. What he didn't know is that the Austrians were planning a surprise of their own. They expected the main French thrust to come from Germany, but they planned to merely contain this attack. Their own main counteroffensive would come in the south, through Italy. With both sides pouring their strength into Italy, it became increasingly likely that the coming campaign would decide the war. Much of Napoleon's strategy depended on Massena and his 10,000 men down in Genoa. Austrian commander Michael von Melas needed to keep Massena bottled up, which would prevent him from concentrating his forces, forcing him to stay strung out across the whole region. If all went according to plan, Napoleon would use the distraction of Genoa to get the army of reserve safely over the mountains, then hammer the Austrians against the anvil of Genoa. Napoleon needed Massena to hang on, whatever the cost. Massena agreed, but both he and Napoleon knew this was a tall order. During the first Italian campaign, Mantua had been able to hold out for months, but it was a fortress city, purpose-built to withstand a siege. The Habsburgs had even gone so far as to alter the course of the river around Mantua to make it harder to take. Genoa was just a regular port city with no particularly strong fortifications or defensible terrain. There were no stone walls or brick bastions. Most of the French defenders were in filthy, muddy trenches, just like the Austrians. But probably most importantly, Genoa didn't have any vast warehouses full of flour, hardtack, and dried beef. Massena's men didn't have much more than the supplies they carried with them when they entered the city. Worse, the French had carried more than food and equipment with them into Genoa. Typhus, a deadly fever spread by fleas and lice, continued to stalk the army and flourished in the cramped conditions inside the city. Malnutrition made the problem worse and paved the way for other diseases and health problems among the men. When Massena entered Genoa in early April, he estimated there were enough supplies to hold out for around a month. So, when Napoleon left Dijon on May 8th, the garrison of Genoa was already on borrowed time and suffering terribly. Men on guard duty had to bring chairs with them, because their daily calorie intake was so low, none of them could stand for hours at a time without passing out. But Napoleon urged them to hold on. Bonaparte knew Massena. Few men in the French army were as tenacious or determined. He was the type of general who could achieve the impossible. He would never give up on an objective until he was well and truly beaten, beyond any hope of success. Napoleon was right to trust him. Massena refused Austrian overtures, even as his men were reduced to eating their own horses, and then their own shoes. Massena refused any special consideration, and drew the same rations as his men. As supplies dwindled, he himself began to weaken and fell sick. His aides began to worry he might not survive, but still, he would not give in. The remaining Genoese civilians rioted, demanding food or an end to the siege, or both. Massena put them down with an iron fist and placed the city under draconian martial law. His men were dying. At first, it was only the sick and wounded, but as Napoleon approached the Alps, they were dying in their thousands, dozens every day. They were being sacrificed to secure the greater victory, just as surely as if they'd been ordered to make a suicidal diversionary attack on the battlefield. It wasn't glorious, and it certainly wasn't pleasant, but still they held on. Napoleon sent a messenger with news and orders from Messena, instructing him to reach the city at any cost. 
On May 27th, the courier swam through the British blockade, saber in his teeth, while musket and cannon fire lashed the water around him. The news he brought was hopeful. Napoleon was in the Alps, headed south. Help was coming. But the orders he carried were grim. Napoleon demanded that Massena refuse to contemplate surrender for at least another week. He had to keep the Austrians tied up, besieging the city until the army of reserve was safely out of the mountains and established on Italian soil. Supplies had run out. Men were dying like flies. The city was on the brink of exploding. But Massena was determined to follow this order. To the north, Napoleon's army of reserve was going through an ordeal of its own. The Austrians had good reason to expect the French would not send an army through the Swiss Alps. You sometimes see people claim it was believed to be impossible, but that's not entirely true. People moved through the passes relatively frequently. It was certainly not an easy journey, but these routes had been well established since ancient times. Certainly everyone on both sides was familiar with the story of the Carthaginian general Hannibal invading Roman Italy along almost the same route in 218 BC. It was one of the most famous campaigns of classical times. Napoleon's march through the Alps was unprecedented in its scale and speed, and in the fact that he brought most of the army's artillery along, all of the artillery, not just light mountain guns. This was accomplished by fully disassembling every cannon and carrying them all by hand. A young grenadier who served on one of the teams carrying a gun described the experience. Quote, it was a terrible journey. From time to time, there were commands of halt or advance, but no other word was spoken. When we reached the snow, matters became more serious. The road was covered with ice, which cut our shoes and our gunner could not manage the piece. It slipped constantly, and he was obliged to mount it anew. This man needed all his courage to hold out. Halt! Advance! He cried out every moment, and all moved on in silence. End quote. Each man assigned to a gun team received double rations for the duration of the march, and a bonus of six francs, nearly an extra month's pay. But even so, I doubt their comrades were jealous. One of the most iconic images of Napoleon depicts the first consul during his march through the Alps. It's an 1801 painting by Jacques-Louis David, fittingly titled Napoleon Crossing the Alps. David portrays Napoleon in full-dress uniform, on a rearing gray stallion, arm raised, urging his men onwards, and looking to the side over his shoulder at the viewer with an air of calm determination. At the horse's feet are rocks bearing the names Hannibal, Charlemagne, and Bonaparte, indicating that with this daring offensive, the first consul was joining the ranks of history's great commanders. Obviously, this is a romantic and fanciful depiction, particularly in contrast with the grubby reality. Napoleon made the crossing bundled up in a big, formless gray winter coat on the back of a mule led by a sure-footed Swiss mountain guide. As far as I know, there were no engraved rocks along the trail, although I suppose anything is possible. The army of reserve began to emerge from the Alps in late May, and by the end of the month, Bonaparte was reassembling his units and occupying towns in northern Italy. He had pulled off his great march through the mountains. The army of reserve was now poised to cut off all of the Habsburg forces west of Mantua, well over 50,000 men eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this stage in the campaign, Napoleon may have begun to verge on overconfidence. It's not hard to see why. His army had just pulled off an incredible feat. 
He had a dagger aimed at his enemy's heart. All that was left was the final thrust, and he would have achieved his promised victory. But the army of reserve still had yet to fight a major engagement. The Austrians were far from beaten. On June 4th, Napoleon was dealt a major setback. André Massena surrendered Genoa to the Austrians. He had waited a week, per Bonaparte's instructions, but refused to put his men through any more suffering than his commander ordered. Proud to the last, he opened talks with the Austrians with a demand. If the word surrender was used once, Massena would walk out of negotiations. He was bluffing, his men were in no condition to fight, but it worked. The Habsburgs agreed to allow the garrison to march out of the city with weapons in hand and flags flying. They would evacuate Italy under a truce, but could return to combat immediately as soon as they reached France. It was barely a surrender at all. The Austrians would get control of the city, but wouldn't have much else to show for their efforts. As the British, French, and Austrian commanders sat down to sign the agreement, a loud, low rumble could be heard in the distance. Massena leapt up from his chair, shouting, quote, Here comes the first consul with his army, end quote, and stormed dramatically out of the room. The noise turned out to be thunder, and Massena soon returned, tail between his legs, to sign the document. Napoleon would later claim that he was disappointed Massena didn't wait longer, but he'd followed Bonaparte's orders to the letter. If Napoleon wanted Genoa to hold out ten days, he should have ordered them to wait ten days instead of a week. The garrison's tenacity had cost them dearly. Nearly 40% had died during the siege, almost exclusively from hunger or disease, along with hundreds of civilians. Massena hadn't come through unscathed either. He did eventually recover from his illness, but his health was never quite the same. He'd entered Genoa a robust, vigorous 42-year-old man with salt-and-pepper hair. He left the city two months later, thin, frail, and white-haired, as if he'd aged 20 years. Napoleon had been hoping the Genoa garrison would still be in play when he engaged the Austrians, but obviously he knew surrender was a possibility. This would make his plans more difficult, but certainly not impossible. The sacrifice of the garrison had already served its primary purpose, allowing the army of reserve to cross over the Alps without serious opposition, and keeping the Austrians spread out across northwestern Italy as Napoleon prepared his offensive. As his troops advanced south, Bonaparte anticipated two possible reactions from the Austrian general, von Melas. Either he would make a stand somewhere near Genoa, where there were a large number of Habsburg troops concentrated and good, prepared defensive positions, or he would evacuate his men to the east to prevent them from being cut off by the French advance and link up with the rest of the Austrian forces in Italy. Napoleon believed he had good intelligence indicating the Austrians would take the latter course of action. According to some sources, his scouts had reported that none of the bridges leading east had been destroyed, indicating that the Austrians planned to use them themselves. According to other sources, he interviewed locals who informed him von Melas was preparing a retreat. This is where Bonaparte's overconfidence comes into play. With his suspicions confirmed, he immediately began dividing up his forces, fanning them out towards strategic crossroads and river crossings all over northern Italy, hoping to catch von Melas as he attempted to retreat. Bonaparte should have worked harder to double-check his intelligence, because his scouts were mistaken, or those Italian peasants had misled him, or something else had gone wrong. In fact, von Melas had no intention of retreating, nor would he stand and fight at Genoa. The Austrians were concentrating much further north, looking for an opportunity to attack the French. Von Melas was slightly outnumbered, but he wanted to strike now before Bonaparte had an opportunity to link up with the remnants of the Army of Italy, which would soon be strengthened by the survivors of the Genoa garrison. Von Melas wrote to Vienna, quote, I do not intend to reduce my forces by isolated actions but to attack the enemy with a concentrated force, end quote. I think this was the wisest course of action for the Austrians under the circumstances, and it's probably what Napoleon would have done in their shoes, 
The fact that Bonaparte didn't even consider that they might pursue this strategy shows how severely he underestimated his opponent. He certainly wasn't alone in that. The Austrian commander, von Melas, didn't even enjoy the respect or confidence of his own subordinates. He was 71 years old, and like many generals, frail beyond his years. In his prime, von Melas was considered a good, if unremarkable, officer, but very much on the downward slope of his career. His appointment as Habsburg commander in Italy had come as a surprise to almost everyone, including von Melas himself, whose initial response had been, quote, I am in no condition to lead, end quote. Behind closed doors, senior Habsburg officers in Italy described him as lazy. His own chief of staff called him an imbecile. He sometimes spent days away from headquarters at a nearby spa, nursing his frail health. Many doubted he'd survive the campaign. Another feeble old Austrian general facing off against Bonaparte in northern Italy. We've seen this story before. But von Melas had an advantage over his unfortunate predecessors. A capable, dynamic headquarters staff most notably including 33-year-old Colonel Count Josef Radetzky von Raditz. Radetzky was one of the brightest rising stars in the Habsburg military, and would eventually go down in history as one of the Empire's greatest soldiers. So when discussing this campaign, we may talk about von Melas doing this, or von Melas thinking that, but we often really mean his staff, who took on many of the responsibilities of command. After the fall of Genoa on June 4th came days of chaotic, furious marching as the Austrians rushed to concentrate their forces near the city of Alessandria, and Napoleon's troops fanned out to cut off potential lines of retreat to the east. Here and there, units from the two armies blundered into one another. Clearly there would be a major engagement soon, but no one could yet predict where or what form it would take. Napoleon still had no idea how precarious his position was. He had the slight advantage in numbers, but with each passing day, his army became more spread out as they rushed to various objectives around northern Italy. Meanwhile, von Melas's army became more concentrated with each passing day, as units who had been besieging Genoa or preparing for the invasion of France arrived around Alessandria. The Austrians almost lost their nerve and fell back to Genoa, but after a heated council of war on June 11th, they decided to continue with their plan and seek a major engagement with Bonaparte. To ensure Napoleon continued to believe the Habsburg army was in retreat, the Austrians sent engineers east to build more bridges, and dispatched spies armed with disinformation into French-controlled territory. Meanwhile, von Melas began moving the main body of their army into position to attack the French. On June 13th, von Melas's chief of staff, Colonel Anton von Sack, received confirmation from his spies that Napoleon had taken the bait, and had further divided his forces to cut off this phantom retreat. Von Sack shouted at the top of his lungs, quote, This time we have this Bonaparte, end quote. Von Sack was an arrogant, egotistical man, but for once he was right to be so confident. The Austrians now had over 30,000 men concentrated in the main body of their force. With Bonaparte's army scattered, he could only call upon around half that number. By the 13th, French scouts had learned that the Austrians were concentrating around Alessandria, but still had no idea just how large this force was. Napoleon was troubled by this news, but still stubbornly clung to the belief that von Melas would retreat. His main worry at this point was that the Austrians would escape before he could deal them a defeat, not that they would attack in force. That afternoon, the two armies blundered into each other at the village of Marengo, outside Alessandria. After a short but intense fight, the Austrians fell back, exactly what you might expect from the rear guard of a retreating army. The French pursued, the Austrians counterattacked, and this small but intense skirmish was only ended by sunset. This engagement had not been a part of the Austrian plan, and it threw off their timetable as they moved into position for the big attack the next day. This was compounded by an unseasonable rainstorm that blew in after dark. The Habsburg troops slogged through the water and mud to get to their designated campsites. 
The Austrian attack was slated to begin at dawn, but this was pushed back to eight in deference to this exhausting night. A warm summer sun rose on the morning of June 14th, burning away the humidity of the night's rain, a perfect day for a battle. The Austrians went into combat to the strains of wild Balkan music played by the bands of their Croatian regiments, which must have sounded strange and exotic to the hapless French in their path. There was no denying that von Melas had the drop on Napoleon, but the Austrian plan was far from perfect. They had a more accurate understanding of the position of Napoleon's troops than he did of theirs, but they were still largely guessing, and they soon discovered they had guessed wrong. The main body of the French army was around 11 miles or 18 kilometers further southwest than the Austrian staff had assumed. Instead of attacking around a lightly guarded flank, the main thrust of their assault was aimed directly at an entire army corps under General Claude Victor, nearly 10,000 men. Worse, their line of attack was blocked by a ditch. No one had taken much notice of it when they'd scouted the battlefield the day before, but after the night's rain, this ditch had transformed into a muddy stream. All the streams and rivers around the battlefield were running high, which gave a much-needed boost to the defenders. The French were surprised by the size and determination of this attack, but put up stiff resistance, pouring fire into the ditch while the Austrians struggled to maintain the momentum. After suffering horrendous casualties, the attackers finally fell back. But that was far from the end of it. The white-jacketed Habsburg troops just kept coming. The Republicans executed a perfect fighting retreat, drilling volleys into the enemy, but always falling back before the superior Austrian numbers could smash their lines. As the bloody morning wore on, General Victor rotated out the battered 1st Division of his corps and replaced it with the larger 2nd Division. The line held, but only barely. After only around two hours of battle, Victor's officers were already worried about their ammunition supplies. They would not be able to stand this kind of pressure for long. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Back at French headquarters, Napoleon was painfully slow to grasp the seriousness of the situation. He could hear the musket volleys and cannon fire with his own ears, but remained convinced this was nothing more than a delaying action or a diversion. He could feel in his bones that the Austrians were going to retreat, even while evidence to the contrary stared him in the face. Finally, at around ten in the morning, two hours into the battle, Bonaparte began committing reserves and redirecting nearby units to aid Victor's embattled corps around Marengo. To General Desay, commander of a corps, he wrote, quote, I had thought to attack, but the enemy has forestalled me. In the name of God, return if you still can. End quote. Still, he refused to admit this was a major engagement with the whole Austrian army, and continued to work on his plans to cut off von Melas's retreat. Fortunately for General Victor, General Lon's corps was only a few hours' march away, and Lon began sending units towards Marengo as soon as he heard the sound of cannons. They began arriving on the battlefield late in the morning, just in time to stabilize the line and prevent Victor from being outflanked. Napoleon arrived on the battlefield at around 11, and seeing the scale and intensity of the fighting, was finally able to admit that he'd been wrong, and the decisive engagement of the campaign was already underway. 
By noon, Bonaparte had already been forced to commit his reserves, to extend the fragile French line and prevent it from being outflanked. The day was only half over, and he had no troops left to commit. If the Austrians broke through or turned a flank, there would be no way to stop them. Napoleon desperately needed the scattered units of his army to arrive on the battlefield, or the French would likely be overwhelmed. The fighting was furious on every sector of the battlefield. The Austrians pushed forward relentlessly, and the French made them pay for every step forward, counterattacking where they could. The Republicans fought well, but they were simply too badly outnumbered. Almost everywhere, the French were forced to give up ground. A Republican soldier described his experience. Quote, we were riddled with canister fire. Everything fell on us. The smoke was so thick that you could no longer see. The shells set fire to the large cornfield, which we were in the middle of. This caused a commotion in the ranks. A few cartridge pouches blew up. We were forced to fall back and reform as soon as possible. This incident did us great harm, and it took all the audacity of our leaders to restore us. End quote. Late in the afternoon, the village of Marengo finally fell to Habsburg troops. This had been the anchor of the French position. Without it, defeat looked inevitable. Bonaparte counterattacked with cavalry and the infantry of the Consular Guard, his own personal unit. This assault made valiant progress against overwhelming odds, but they were too few. The guard was caught out of formation and swamped by a sudden Austrian cavalry charge. Hundreds were cut down, and the survivors fled in panic back to the French lines. Amazingly, the decrepit, pain-racked 71-year-old von Melas hauled himself into the saddle and personally led two cavalry squadrons that afternoon. Whatever his faults, he was a brave man. He had begun his career in the cavalry, and apparently still couldn't say no to a fight. During this jaunt with the horsemen, von Melas was knocked from his horse twice. He had to be removed to the rear to seek medical attention, and command passed to his chief of staff, Colonel von Zock. This whole plan was von Zock's brainchild, so perhaps it was a blessing in disguise for the Austrians to finally dispense with the fiction that von Melas was the one in charge. The Austrians now seemed unstoppable. The French fell back to a new defensive line anchored on the village of Spinetta. With the enemy so close, some unit would have to sacrifice themselves in a dangerous, futile counterattack to cover this retreat. This dubious honor fell to the 40th Line Demi-Brigade of General François Vautrin's division. Upon receiving the order, Vautrin replied, quote, I don't expect anything from it. My soldiers are brave, but overwhelmed. But if you want it, we will march. End quote. By all accounts, it was a valiant charge. But predictably, Vautrin was stopped dead by the Austrians. The 40th suffered terrible casualties, but succeeded in buying precious time for the rest of the army to escape and reposition. As the afternoon waned and evening approached, it was increasingly clear that the Austrians had won the battle. The only question that remained was whether Bonaparte could keep his troops in formation and fall back in good order, or if this defeat would turn into a rout. But with victory at hand, the Austrians seemed to lose some of their intensity and momentum. Perhaps this was simply complacency, but they had paid dearly for this triumph and needed to rest and regroup. In particular, they had lost many officers— which may have rendered the army slightly more sluggish and less organized than it had been that morning. According to some sources, some of the Austrian troops paused in the captured French camps to finish the breakfasts left behind by the surprised Republicans, a sure sign of a victorious army. A Piedmontese nobleman who was fighting alongside the Austrians took advantage of this lull to dash off a letter to friends back home, informing them that the coalition had won a complete triumph. An Austrian officer ordered his band to play the Grenadier's March, a song which was traditionally played to celebrate victories. The mood at the French headquarters was somber, but Napoleon never gave up as long as there was still some hope of victory. The first consul busied himself organizing the new line of defense, and demanded updates from his aides on the locations of other units in the army. 
Just before five o'clock, a lone rider galloped up to Napoleon's headquarters. It was General Desay himself. Bonaparte called out, quote, Well, well, General Desay, quite a skirmish, eh? End quote. Desay replied, quote, Well, General, I have arrived. We are all fresh, and if we must, we will go get ourselves killed. End quote. He informed Bonaparte that 6,000 men from his corps would soon arrive on the battlefield. According to legend, Napoleon asked him for his assessment of the situation, and Desay replied, quote, The battle is lost, but there is still time to win another one. End quote. Other sources claim Desay suggested using his corps as a rearguard to cover the army's retreat from the battlefield, but that's nowhere near as good a story. Desay's arrival was the glimmer of hope Napoleon had been waiting for. He had spent all day reacting to the Habsburg onslaught. Now he finally had fresh troops, and the enemy was looking tired and spent. The time was right to seize the initiative. It was summer in southern Europe. Napoleon still had roughly four hours before sunset to turn things around and win the great victory he had promised the people of France. Napoleon dispersed Desay's units all along the line, rather than deploying them altogether, in hopes that this would raise the morale of the men who had been through the harrowing experience of the Austrian assaults earlier in the day. And apparently, it worked. Stragglers flocked back to their units, feeling that the tide of the battle was about to turn. Now it was von Zach's turn to underestimate his opponents. The Austrian chief of staff considered the battle won, and refused to entertain ominous reports from the front lines, which indicated the French might be up to something. During the lull in the battle, Austrian light infantry were busy harassing the French line to keep up the pressure and monitor their movements. But upon Desay's arrival, the French cavalry rode out and drove them back to their own lines. And so, Desay's men were able to take up their positions hidden behind a shroud of smoke from the gunpowder and burning wheat fields. Von Zach and the Austrian staff were apparently unconcerned that they had lost their eyes and ears. Now they were the ones spreading out their forces, in preparation for a final assault, which they hoped would completely envelop the French, turning both flanks and pinning down the center, thus achieving the total destruction of Napoleon's army. Once Desay's men were in position, the lull which had settled over the battlefield was broken by a massive barrage from the French artillery. They had not been a huge factor in the battle so far, because they were so badly outgunned by the Austrians, but Desay and General Marmont, the chief of artillery, had gathered every cannon they could find and concentrated them in the French center, and for about 20 minutes, Marmont's gunners ruled the battlefield. Then, one of General Desay's divisional commanders, General Louis Guénon, led a fresh brigade forward. The Austrians were in a good position along a line of grapevines, and as Guénon put it, they were, quote, entrenched to the teeth, end quote. As the French rushed forward, Guénon was struck in the thigh, but was relieved to discover he was unharmed. The bullet was stopped by his pocket change. Yes, apparently that really does happen, it's not just from the movies. When he and his men reached the vineyard, the Austrian defenders engaged them in fierce hand-to-hand combat. At one point, a group of white-jacketed grenadiers surged towards the brigade's flag. Several managed to get their hands on the flagpole before the French finally fought them off. An enemy banner was the greatest prize on any Napoleonic battlefield. Any man who played a part in capturing one could be sure of promotion and a place in the history books. Units who lost their banners never fully recovered their prestige. Desay's corps would capture three in this particular assault. Behind them, the French artillery continued to fire over their heads to cover the advance. Someone scored a lucky hit, and an Austrian ammunition wagon was blown sky-high. As we've seen before, the terrific blast produced by these lucky shots was so frightening and disorienting that it could turn the tide of a battle. Now, the tide of this particular battle was already turning, but this explosion certainly accelerated the process. The timing could not have been better for the French. The Austrian cavalry was just about to launch a counterattack. Lacking cavalry of their own, Desay's men would have been forced to form squares, taking the momentum out of their attack. 
But instead, the Austrians were thrown into momentary disarray by the explosion, and at that very moment, 300 Republican cavalry under François-Étienne Kellermann arrived to support the attack. They seized the opportunity and immediately galloped into action, smashing the Austrian horsemen and pushing all the way into the enemy rear, where they then reformed and charged right back the other direction, smashing through the Austrian lines a second time. When he had been ordered to support Dessay's attack, Kellermann had responded, quote, I have been fighting since six in the morning. I have made six charges. I have lost half my men. My unit is exhausted. Replace us with someone else. End quote. The messenger responded that there was no one else. And so, Kellermann rode reluctantly into combat. Only a few minutes later, he had charged two more times and saved the French advance. Meanwhile, Dessay's infantry continued the attack, and the always quick French horse artillery followed in their wake, blasting the hole in the Austrian lines even wider. All three branches of the service were working together in perfect harmony, amplifying one another's strengths and compensating for each other's weaknesses. The historian T.E. Crowdy calls this assault, quote, one of the finest combined arms attacks of the Napoleonic Wars, end quote. After taking a beating all day, the French suddenly had the momentum. It was a stunning reversal. This was a double triumph for General Dessay, a victory for France and for the cause of the Republic, but also a personal victory. Since he had first come under Bonaparte's command in Egypt, the two men had a rocky relationship. Dessay had always considered himself Napoleon's peer when it came to leadership and strategy. Napoleon found this assumption impertinent and arrogant, and in turn, Dessay resented him. But finally, during this campaign in Italy, Dessay had won Napoleon's respect. Other officers were shocked by the brash, informal tone Dessay used with the First Consul. We got a little taste of that with their banter when he arrived on the battlefield. Two years earlier, this probably would have annoyed Napoleon too, but by 1800, he had come to see that Dessay justified his haughty attitude with genuine ability and competence. Once Bonaparte began treating him as an equal, Dessay's hostility evaporated, and the two men grew close. In Napoleon's words, quote, Yes, I have taken a long time to come around to him, but I had my reasons. As soon as I return to Paris, I will make him a minister. He shall always be my lieutenant. I would make him a prince if I could. He reminds me of a character from antiquity. End quote. That last line is quite high praise from Napoleon, who worshipped the ancient Greeks and Romans. And so, as his corps surged forward to win the day at Marengo, the impending victory must have had a special personal significance for Dessay. After years of trying, he had finally won Bonaparte's confidence. And now he was repaying that confidence by delivering the First Consul a triumph that he desperately needed. Dessay had more than proven his worth. He swelled with pride as he watched his men advance on the Austrian headquarters. At this climactic moment, he rode forward to take personal command of the attack. He wanted to savor this moment, and who can blame him? A staff officer who accompanied Dessay described what happened next. Quote, An Austrian regiment, positioned in some vines no more than ten paces away, received us with some lively musket fire. Behind them was the enemy army's headquarters. It was then, at the beginning of the charge, that General Dessay was struck by a bullet that was coming obliquely. It hit him above the heart and exited through the right shoulder. I turned around and saw him fall. I approached. He was dead. End quote. According to legend, Dessay foresaw his death, telling a friend that he would see her again in the next world. But such stories are common when a great commander falls. His death was a great loss to the army, to France, and to Napoleon. Dessay was undeniably brilliant, and at only 31 years old, we can't help but wonder what he might have achieved with more time. The victory at Marengo was Dessay's parting gift. After seeing him fall, the men of his corps surged forward, crying out, Revenge! Immediately after firing the volley that killed Dessay, that Austrian regiment was engulfed by Kellermann's charge from the rear and annihilated. The French swarmed into the Austrian headquarters, 
capturing the arrogant Colonel von Zock and much of the army staff, along with their priceless documents and correspondence. Desay's last glorious charge had snatched a stunning triumph from almost certain defeat. Despite some serious bad luck and a few massive mistakes, Napoleon had delivered on his first promise to the people of France, victory. At the Battle of Marengo, the French lost around 5,500 men, killed, wounded, captured, and missing. That number might sound low given the intensity of the fighting, but that's a testament to how skillfully they had managed their fighting retreats in the morning and early afternoon. They'd lost a lot of ground, but mostly avoided costly routes and suicidal hand-to-hand combat against vastly superior enemy forces. Austrian casualties were not much worse, roughly 6,000 killed or wounded. The real damage to their army came in the form of prisoners taken during and immediately after Desai's assault, and in the pursuit as they retreated from the battlefield. Over 8,000 Habsburg troops were captured, along with the majority of the army's artillery, a great deal of food and supplies, and a whopping 15 battle standards. This is already a very long episode, so I think we'll leave things there for now and talk about the aftermath of the battle next time. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.